Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. As Annie mentioned, this is the first Sunday of the season of Advent that leads to the celebration of Christmas. And this year we are going to look at the first chapter, first half of the chapter of the first the first half of the first chapter of the gospel according to John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I, would, I know you've been standing for a while. I'd like to ask for you to stand, and I'm going to read uh, these verses for us. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is God's word. may be seated. Lord, I pray today as we hear your word spoken to us that we would have a clearer and deeper understanding of the mystery of who you are. And Lord, that we would know know better how, how you are calling us to live in your world. Amen. So the Bible gives us four different gospel stories, four different accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of these gospel accounts are different in various ways. But if you've read these four gospels, you know that the gospel of John is very different from the other three. And we notice this difference right here in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. John doesn't give us any information about the facts of the birth of Jesus. 
There are no stories about shepherds or angels or wise men, no stories about Mary and Joseph. We rely on Matthew and Luke to tell us the historical facts that happened around Jesus's birth. And so Matthew and Luke, they give us the facts of the story. What I want to suggest to you today is that John tells us what those facts mean. He tells us what those facts mean. John, in these first verses of his gospel, give us a theological and philosophical reflection on the significance and the meaning of of Jesus coming into the world. In order to tell their stories about Jesus, each of the four gospel writers look backwards. Each of the gospel writers look backwards. Mark begins his gospel with a quotation from one of the prophets, Isaiah. And so here at the beginning, Mark in his gospel is telling us that the story that he is about to tell us about this man named Jesus is the fulfillment of the words that these prophets said. And all of the promises that God made through the prophets are about to be fulfilled in the life of this man, Jesus, that I'm about to tell you about. That's how Mark begins his gospel. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. It's a very strange way to begin any kind of book with a list of of names about Jesus' ancestors. And the genealogy of Matthew goes all the way back to a man named Abraham. What Matthew is doing in that genealogy is connecting Jesus backwards to the story of Israel and showing how Jesus is the descendant of a king king named David and a man named Abraham. So Matthew begins his gospel by telling us that this story about Jesus that I'm about to tell you fulfills promises that God made to King David and to Abraham. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke gives the historical count of the birth of Jesus. Most of the stories that we think about and remember during Christmas are from the Gospel of Luke. But Luke also gives a genealogy towards the beginning of his book. But Luke doesn't go all the way back to Abraham. He actually goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. Luke is telling us at the beginning of his Gospel that the story he is about to tell us about this man named Jesus is a story that finds its beginning all the way back to our very first ancestors and the problems that they caused in the garden that are now going to be solved by this man named Jesus in this story that I'm about to tell you about. Mark goes back to the time of the prophets of Israel. Matthew goes back to the time of Abraham. Luke goes back to the time of Adam. And then there is John. And John goes way back. He goes way back further than Abraham or Adam. John goes back to the beginning before there was a beginning. Back to a time before there was time. Back to a place before there was a place. He goes back to when there was only God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin their Gospels by focusing on human history 
and how Jesus fits in the work that God has been doing in the life of Israel and in humanity since the prophets and back to Abraham and even back to Adam. John begins his gospel by telling us that Jesus is a part of God's history. John begins his gospel by going all the way back to the beginning, before there was a beginning, before there was time or space or matter, back to a time when there was only God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John tells us that the story that he is about to tell us about Jesus Christ is a story that has something to do with the eternal life of God, the Creator, the Word of God in the beginning, who is the source of all life and all light. So over the next month, we are going to sit in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It would be great for you if you would read this, these verses regularly over the next month and let it soak in for you. We're going to talk throughout the next few weeks about the different ways that John describes who Jesus is. And today we're going to focus on this idea that John gives to us, that Jesus is the Word of God. The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What other book of the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, and then talks about a voice? Genesis. And any of the the Jewish readers that were familiar with the book of Genesis, when they first read the book of John, they would would have heard those echoes of Genesis chapter 1, the very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light And there was light. In the beginning, there was a voice. In the beginning was the word of God. And when the word was spoken, everything that is or was or ever will be came into existence. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then verse three confirms what Genesis one says that through him, all things were made and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In these opening lines of the gospel of John, John is taking us way, way, way back into time. Back to the time and place before there was a time and a place. Back to a reality for which our human language can't even speak about. Back to a reality when there was only God. God, fully alive, full of joy, full of love and life in God's own being. God without any need or want. But God, in his wisdom and in his kindness and his love, He spoke a word, and through that word made all things. So John here, in the beginning of his gospel, is making a connection for us to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Jewish scriptures, the first book of the Bible, to the book of beginnings. And he's telling us that the story that he is about to tell us about Jesus is a story that finds its source and its meaning and its purpose in the eternal life of God. 
In the first few verses of his gospel, John is also making another connection as well. In addition to making the connection between the book of Genesis, John also makes a connection with some ideas that were happening in this time in the area of Greek philosophy. Now, I just said Greek philosophy, and a lot of you began to think about lunch real fast. But just hang on with me for a a couple of minutes. The Greek word that John uses here for the word word is the Greek word logos. Logos. I did not say lego. I did not say legolos. I said logos. Jesus, the word. The word in Greek is logos. And the word logos could simply mean word, like a word that was written down on a page. But in Greek philosophy, this word had some deeper layers of meaning to it. Greek philosophers, hundreds of years before John ever wrote this gospel, they began talking about this thing called the Logos. And maybe you've heard of names like Pythagoras or Heraclitus or Socrates or Plato. These were Greek philosophers who did not have the Hebrew scriptures, but these Greek philosophers, uh, they began to look around at the world and they recognized that there was order in it. They didn't have the book of Genesis that talked about the orderliness of creation, but as they observed the world around them, they recognized that there was order in it. There was meaning. There was coherence. The planets and the stars and the moon and the sun, they always did the same thing. The seasons always came and went. The early Greeks knew how babies were made and how long it would take before a baby was born. And they knew that there would be order to that birth, that when a a woman gave birth, that they would give birth to a human being and not an elephant. Ladies are grateful for that, right? Those things were obvious, that there was order in the world around them. But as these philosophers began to sit and to think, they began to realize that there were were even some more subtle ways that the world cohered together, that, that there was an order. I just want to give you one, one example here. I'm going to play a scale on the piano. I'm going to play a scale three times, and I want you to tell me which one is the right one. Which one is the right one, Okay. That's number one. Here's number two. And here's number three. Okay. Number one, number two, or number three, which is the right? Number two. Why do you know that? Because it sounded good. Thank you, Josh. Even Josh, (laughs) who can't hear. That was awesome. It sounded right. Most of you, unless you're Ben Fisher or Dana Collins, don't have any musical 
background or not, not very many of you have a whole lot of theory or music theory, but all of you knew when I didn't play that flat that that was wrong, that it felt off. Or on the third one, when I didn't finish the scale, it's like, just please play that note one more time because it doesn't feel right to not be finished and whole and completed. There was a man named Pythagoras who, according to Dana Collins, who I talked to yesterday about this, he actually discovered that and proved it acoustically, how it is that there are scales and that those scales have meaning and coherence. And we don't just make them up. They exist within themselves. So the Greek philosophers did not believe that there was a God who created the world out of nothing. They had other theories about how the world came to be, but they observed the world and they noticed that it was orderly, that it was predictable, that it wasn't just all chaos and disorder, but the world was held together by something. That there, that there was reason in the world, that, that, that there was some force or reason that undergirded and supported and held the universe together. And do you know what word these Greek philosophers used to describe what held the world together? Can you guess? Logos. They did not think that the Logos was a personal being, but they thought that it was some force, some organizing principle that held all things together. So now back to John. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Do you see what John is doing? In addition to connecting his account of the life of Jesus to the Jewish book of Genesis... He is also making a connection for us and for his readers to this Greek concept of the Logos. The Logos of God, the voice, the energy, the reason, the principle that brought the world into existence, that holds all of the universe in place, that gives the times and the seasons order, the Logos that even makes music and mathematics make sense. John is saying, I'm about to tell you the story about what this Logos is. And John is going to say that what I'm about to tell you about this Logos is that the Logos is not a what, but a who. And if the Logos is not a thing, the Logos is a person. A person that you can know. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life. And that life was the light of all men. So John begins to develop this idea of the Logos in this next verse. In him was life, and that life was the light of all men. That the Logos, according to John, does not simply give meaning and order to creation out there, to planets and to stars and to seasons and to human biology and to mathematics and to music. But this Logos actually gives life and light to human beings, gives meaning and purpose to you and to me. That this Logos has a person that has a will about us, has a purpose about us. 
that the Logos is not merely an impersonal force that holds everything together. The Logos is personal. The orienting principle of the world has a reason, a rhyme, a meaning for your life and for mine. And so these are the first five verses of the Gospel of John. This is how he begins his account of the life of Jesus Christ taking us back not just to King David or to Abraham or to Adam, but taking us back into the eternal life of God, not just telling us the facts of the Christmas story, but telling us that this story that he is about to tell us has cosmic significance, a meaning and purpose that certainly includes God's purposes for Israel and for humanity, but that is also very much about God and his involvement in your life and in our world. And for the most part, I think that a Jewish person or a Greek person reading these first five verses, they would have been interested, a little bit curious about what John had to say, maybe would have scratched their heads a little bit wondering what he meant. But I think they would have been tracking with him. They would have been tracking with him, I think, until verse 14, when John comes back to this idea of the Logos after talking about John the Baptist and a few other things. In verse 14, he comes back and he says this. That the word, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He says that the word, the Logos of the universe, took on human flesh and made his dwelling among us. The voice that was at the beginning that spoke the world into existence. The organizing principle of the universe that holds all things together, that, gives, uh, that, that makes sure that the planets stay in motion, that makes sure that the seasons of the year are consistent year after year, the one that gives coherence to everything and holds all things together, that that thing that you call the Logos became flesh, a human being. And at that point... John would have lost almost all of his audience. I expect that some of them would have laughed, shut the book, rolled up the scroll, whatever it is they did, and they would have moved on because what John is saying here is nonsense. It's ridiculous that the power that created all things became flesh. Human beings are frail and limited and unable to do anything. But John, you're saying that the one who did all of that and holds all things together actually took on flesh and blood, actually became someone that you and I can touch and know that human beings could talk to? It is a ridiculous thing to say. Except that it's true. It's the truest of all true things. And because it is true, the world is a different kind of place than what most of us live in and believe in day after day. That because the Logos, the the power that created everything, the voice that created everything, that holds everything together, that the Logos took on flesh and became a human being, it means that we can come to know God and to be known by him and to love God and to be loved by him. And so I just want to make, make two points about the significance of verse 14. I spent the first part of this sermon talking about 
what this idea of logos is all about. And I just want to now talk about verse 14 and what the significance is for us and for our own lives. There could be five years of sermons on the significance of John 1.14. I'm going to give you two ideas of the significance and meaning for us of that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the first is this. The word became flesh, so... We can know God and love God and be known by him and loved by him. John 1.14 and the rest of the scriptures teach us that God is personal. That we can know him and love him. That we can be known by him and loved by him. The message of John 1.14 is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Logos, has come near to us so that we can come to know God. As human beings, we cannot come to know God on our own. Only God can make God known to us. And he has done that for us in Jesus Christ, the Logos of God made flesh. God is personal. We can know him and love him and be known by him and loved by him. And I just suggest to you that this is perhaps the most radical message that stands in contrast to any other world religion or any other human philosophy. Let me just give you a couple other examples. In Buddhism, the the divine, the the, the all-powerful force is not personal. In Buddhism, there is no personal God. The highest power is an impersonal force that gives life and energy to everything. In Buddhism, the force is in us, is a part of us, is all of around us. All of us experience this impersonal force or power in some way, but it's not personal. It does not know anything and cannot be known. It does not have a will. It does not have a purpose. If you think of the force in Star Wars, that's a great analogy to the idea of the divine in in Buddhist thought and philosophy. It's a similar uh, concept that the force is neither good or bad, but can only be used for good or bad. So if you're Yoda, you use it for good. If you're Darth Vader, you use it for evil. But the force itself doesn't have a will. It doesn't have an opinion. In fact, it simply is there to keep the balance of good and evil or light and darkness. In Buddhism and other similar philosophies, the essential and eternal being that holds everything together is not personal. We cannot relate to it. We cannot know it, let alone love it or be loved by it. In Islam, on the other hand, God is personal. God does have a will. God determines what is right and wrong. God knows things, but, but remains far off and essentially unknowable. God is only known in Islam through his works and through his law, but not in his person. Not in his person. The good news, those are just two examples. And if I was smarter, I could explain that better or give you other examples. But those are two Examples of the contrast to what John is saying here in John chapter 1, 14. That God is personal, that we can know him and be known by him and love him and be loved by him. The second meaning or significance of John chapter 1, 14 is this. 
The word became flesh, so he gives hope that he is going to bring order to the disorder and brokenness of our world. The one who created in the beginning is at work bringing about his new creation. The word, the logos that spoke order in creation in the beginning, he stepped into our world to bring order into it again. Last week, I spoke about how our hearts, it can't hold all of the brokenness of our world. We simply cannot contain all of the hurt and the chaos and the disorder of our world. Our individual hearts and minds are not able to carry all of that, to hold all of it. But John 1.14 says that there is a human being, a real flesh and blood human being who did and does have the power to hold all of it in his own self and the power to fix all of it because he is the Logos, the one who brings order into disorder, from disorder. He is big enough because he made the world in the beginning. He knows what the problem is, and he entered into our world to redeem it and to make it right, to make straight everything that has been made crooked by our sin. And then I have a point number two B. The word became flesh, so he gives hope that he is going to bring order to the disorder and brokenness of our world. And that includes your own life. All of us know that we can't hold all of the hurt and brokenness of the whole world because we can't even hold all of the hurt and brokenness of our own life. We can't overcome our temptations on our own. We can't fix the relationships that are broken. I can't even keep my room clean and I'm 42 years old. (laughs) It's hard to keep our bills in order. Kids come along with incredible joys and challenges, and every day can feel like raising them is far too much of a task for us. John 1.14 tells us that the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us to bring life and light and order to the chaos and brokenness of your life. And when we place our faith in Jesus... We are joined together with the Logos of the whole universe. Let me just say that again. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are joined together with the Logos of the universe. We are invited to participate in our life together with the same power that made all things and that put all things into order. And part of this faith that we have, when we place our faith in him, we are committing to follow him, to be obedient to him, to become his disciple, to learn how to live our life from him. I've often quoted one of my favorite teachers who says many times that Jesus is the smartest person in the world. And that's an intentional understatement. Because Jesus is the Logos, the one that made the world. So, of course, he knows how you are called to be a parent. Of course, he knows how you are called to live as a husband or a wife. He knows how you are called to live as an employee at your workplace or as a neighbor. He knows all of those things because he's the one who designed all of that in the first place. And so when we follow him, when we join our lives to him by faith and commit to follow him in discipleship, we are following not just a good teacher who's discovered a few tidbits about life that he can pass on to us. 
When we follow him and are obedient to him, we are following the one who has ordered the whole universe, has ordered and made you and knows exactly what you need and exactly what you need to do. In Jesus, we discover and we participate in the Logos, the same one who makes the world spin, who makes the seasons come and go, who made music beautiful. We are called to join our lives to him and to follow him because he knows how our lives and our world work because he made it and he designed it. He is the Logos. He was there in the beginning. He is the power and the organizing principle of the world as Paul says that he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things cohere in him. All things find their meaning and their purpose in him. So this December, this Christmas season, in addition to the wonderful stories that you will be reminded of again, that you will rehearse again in your home, that will rehearse here on Sunday mornings, in addition to the facts of that Christmas story, Let's remember that also in the coming of Jesus, that the Logos, the voice that was at the beginning that spoke the world into existence, became flesh and dwelled among us so that you and I could know him and be known by him, so that you and I could love him and be loved by him, so that you and I could have our own lives and all of its disorder and chaos be brought into proper order as we join ourselves to faith in him and follow him in discipleship. Lord, we pray that this good news of the Christmas story according to John, that this would become real for each one of us. That the big concepts that we cannot fully wrap our minds around that John offered to us in these few verses, God, that they would become real and tangible to us as we learn to trust you for who you are. Not just a good teacher, not just a person who lived a good life, but the one who was there in the beginning, speaking our world into existence. Amen.